Welcome to the Red Caps Podcast, a podcast where we dip our caps into the blood of our listeners and we ramble on about old school games. In today's episode, we are joined by Nick Hewitt, a musician commonly known as Of Sleeping Bear. As you know, no mortal can outrun a red cap, so I hope you can sit back, listen, and enjoy. Nick is a talented composer who creates music for films, games, and more recently, tabletop games. The track you hear in the background right now is from his Trials of the Dark Sun album, which is a really cool companion piece for anyone looking to run the Dark Sun setting. In this conversation, we talk about playing games, the role that music has in giving people a common thread to connect their experiences, defining the OSR, and so much more. You may hear the occasional audio glitch as Nick was calling in from his phone, but those are few and far between. So please don't let that sway you from listening to this great chat. Okay, on to what you're really here for, the interview. All right, folks, we've got Nick Hewitt here, also known as Sleeping Bear, composer, musician, and also strangely enough, or maybe not strangely, but uniquely enough, creates a lot of music directly targeted at gaming and modules in specific. Nick, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? Not too bad. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you got into making music for RPGs and why started making music for RPGs as well. Um, by absolute accident. Um, it's one of those things where I was trying to expand my portfolio and I was really into like dungeon synth and I got into the, to the OSR through a lot of separate stuff that way. And I was like, well, I'm going to make a, an album kind of about some of my f- like favorite older cliches. Um, it's semi-focused around second edition's Dark Sun uh, setting, but also just like the sort of sword and sandal genre in and of itself. And that garnered a little bit more attention than I thought it would <laughs> um, when I shared it with OSR groups and D&D groups. And from there, I reached out to some other people and creators in those groups and ended up working with them for a couple other things. And here we are. So often whenever I think of music with regards to tabletop games, I'm usually thinking more of like ambient background stuff, like the typical chatter at a tavern or the spooky noise if I'm down in a dungeon type idea. But you also do a little bit more than just like an ambient noise. You have stuff that's more themed towards like actual modules or or specific uh, key moments and adventures and stuff, correct? Yeah. Um it's a fine line to draw with that. And throughout this interview, you're going to hear me reference the fact that compared to writing for like a video game or a movie, tabletop RPGs are so interactive that your chaos factor of your players comes into play a lot. So when I'm writing music for an RPG module or a setting, I have to steer clear of things that are really, really specific because there are the odds that the players are going to pull a complete. 180 and completely circumvent that but i try to do my best to let the music be a tool that the game master can utilize to further i guess tickle the imaginations of their players i try to make the music paint a picture just like their storytelling would yeah and i think that's that's true for for the other forms of art that kind of goes goes into if you're making something for public consumption in the tabletop rpg space you you kind of have to really find that balance of being specific but also being as general as possible because you have no idea what once it hits the table where it's going to go um so you see that same same caution being taken with people who are writing modules or um you know people who are doing anything really in this hobby is like it doesn't survive first contact with the players most of the time if you've got a <laughs> very specific plan. Um, do you find with with online play, do you find that music from the from the folks that get the most use out of out of your out of your talents, out of, out of the track stuff you use, is it more aimed for folks who are playing online or in person? Do you get any sort of feedback on which way that tends to go? I've never gotten any feedback in terms of like which way it gets used more. Um, 
I've used music in my own like dungeon master stuff in person a lot and it never gets any negative feedback online i think it would be even more useful in that sense that connection between people isn't quite as dynamic like you're not as in person and you know kind of where like maybe a dungeon master can't be as i has animated with their body or something the music might be able to kind of push tensions and certain cues and stuff forward um and i've noticed there are actually around the time i was getting into making music for rpgs a lot of services were being offered for utilizing music and sounds and stuff almost like giant fantasy soundboards um for online play so i think it's becoming a little bit more of a commonplace thing to have soundtracks and playlists yeah i've i've used them um a long time ago when i used to play 5e um, there was a there was a few uh, folks of us that would play on Roll Twenty, and we would play. Uh, we tried to bundle in more music and stuff at that point. Um, and then I moved away from Five E, and now generally the only place where I would probably, if I'm using Foundry, I can I can easily put music in, into that. But I find that sometimes it's a little bit difficult to, with with all the various tools, it's difficult to get folks to where they can, you know, experience the game and not have. 16 different windows or things they have to sign into to get get going that's why i think maybe the in-person might be a little bit easier if you just you know the dm has a laptop off to the side plays music and can key off of it but um online i i maybe you know but i'm not aware of any really great tools for making sure that you keep everything smooth and in check on there do you know of anything like that, that people should check out right off the top of my head um the first one that was going to come to mind for the music and stuff was actually Foundry. That was the big one I saw right before I got into like doing this stuff. Um, you can run certain instances of audio players and stuff directly through Discord. I think that's probably the most streamlined thing where the music kind of plays. It's like a bot that's part of your voice call that is playing right. like a playlist. Um and you can kind of tweak it from there. That would be the most like instanced, not thousands of windows thing kind of I could think of. But I don't do a lot of online play myself. I live in a pretty rural area. Like I'm actually doing this call with you on my phone because <laughs> my <laughs> internet, my actual internet is like satellite based. So I do in-person play a lot more than I do online play. Very good. The... um so when you're sitting down to to create a set of tracks you were saying that there's a fine line between being specific and being just ambient background noise type of idea, or background sounds i shouldn't say noise but background sounds that are roughly on a theme what where do you how do you draw like the the inspiration for like say you were going to do a classic um straw type campaign or a keep on the borderlands or something like those how do you pick out key items from a from a module or something like that to to compose something out of for the first thing i typically do is if i run through a module or a game itself i take a lot of inspiration directly from the lore of the game and i look at how is this lore presented to the players chronologically like what are the players going to know and experience at the beginning you know versus at the end and i kind of use those reveal points as my mile markers so you know if the party is going to start in a tavern i'm going to make a tavern song i'm going to make music that would play in the background of the tavern you can't screw that up you know you're going to start here the players can't can't change that um and i look through modules and see like the most key points that are integral to the adventure and just kind of right off of those and I see where I'm at from there. And if I have a lot of space left, I'll fill in with just general music tracks, like a travel song, an adventuring sort of jaunty tune. Or if I know there's a lot of combat, I'll make sure to write a couple like fighting pieces. And those tracks are intentionally able to be kind of thrown around or looped by the, by the game master. So they're more of like a utility song versus like a thematic song. What has been 
of the ones that you've created, what what has been the favorite mo- your favorite module uh, that you've created tracks for, or is there a module that you're just dying to to sit down and actually get the time to do as well? I had a lot of fun doing the music for We Deal in Lead, um, which is a sort of dark fantasy western role playing game um, made by Biodin's Beard RPG. It's kind of a Cairn hack. Um, that was really fun just because I got to do crazy spaghetti western guitar music with synthesizers and it's something you don't really don't really get to do all the time um as for modules i'd like to do there's a lot of them um i'd really like to take a crack at like making music for troika because it's just so out there and weird Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't even know where i'd begin with that but like that would be a really fun project to take on yeah, if you if you're into the, like the Gonzo and the weird as well, go through if you've not looked at them before some DCC modules as well. Um, there's some crazy stuff that can happen in DCC, and like their mm-hmm. magic system is just full of strange and kookiness, um, but also has a lot of traditional Dungeons and Dragons style um, mm-hmm. activities happening as well. But uh, you, you get a lot of the fun Gonzo stuff in there at the same time. I think Dolman Wood would be really fun to score too. That would be a, a fantastic setting to like do music for. Oh, 100%. Um, Gavin has done great work with Dolman Wood. Uh, the, the whimsical weird is, is kind of the best way to describe Dolman Wood, I think. Um, it's, it's slightly twisted fairy tale, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you can definitely go in, in, in awesome directions with that. I, I completely agree. I think that would be another fantastic area to go to. The when you're making music, um, I'm always interested in the tools that people use. So, are you a like a, a an Adobe person, or or how, what tool base do you use as you're sitting down to to create? Um, so, I depending on what the project calls for, and I'll actually ask the person I'm working with their preferences. Um, I will use physical instruments. I play quite a lot of them. A lot of world folk instruments. Uh, harpa and bazooki a lot of indian instruments and i'll also use vst plugins i actually work with a daw called traction waveform okay and it has like a free version that's just fairly bare bones comes with like a few pl- uh, plugins on its own and then i just have amassed a collection of them over the years and i'll try to do a blend of both um but if the person I'm working with specifically is like, I want this to be as organic and natural as possible, I will just strictly work with uh, physical instruments. And if you're trying to do, if you're trying to loop in some of like the ambient stuff, I've seen people for soundtracks for movies and stuff. Um, I've, I've watched like the, the equivalent of like a director's commentary thing um, where folks will go off into weird spots and just hold a microphone up and, and record sounds in, in random locations and then remix them or sample them um, to kind of get the the effects that they're looking for. Do you do anything like that or is it more you're using uh, like stock uh, sounds from different places and then mixing in, in with the with the work that you do? I will use um, I haven't actually gotten the opportunity to go out and like record any kind of ambient sounds like that. It's something that I would like to do um, especially because I live kind of in like rural Michigan. It's not that far of a drive to go right out into nature and do stuff like that. And I've seen a lot of really interesting stuff come from that. Um, the primary musician in Vordrona will actually go out with like a microphone and he'll beat out r- r- rhythms on tree trunks with sticks and then remix them later and do crazy things like that. But for myself, I'll find um, samples online that are random like i won't even really look for something specific i'll just look for like a big package of just nature sounds or city sounds and i'll modify them and work with them just kind of like see what's in there and see what i can use i kind of like to go about it that way where it's kind of a random pick of what i might have and go from there right you have mentioned uh, synths before. Uh, do you do any like the modular synths? And, uh, I, I'm, I'm stumbling with my words. Modular synths <laughs> and yeah. uh, uh, you know some of the randomization that that can do as well. I would really like to. Um, 
modular sensor are a really big monetary investment. Um, and a lot of composers I follow utilize modular synthesis. It, like they just have like their modules built around their workstation and just patch them in here and there. But a lot of what I do synth-wise is wavetable synthesis, which is really similar. It's like digital modules that are utilizing your... The primary sound is going through different waveforms, but the waveforms aren't just like two-dimensional. Some of them are three-dimensional. And you can do crazy sound design stuff with that and make just absolutely insane um, cylindrical sounds and panning and stuff like that. And that's about as close as I get. But I would like to work with more modular hardware sense. Yeah, you're completely correct on the price. I've looked at some of those before. Um, and the pricing, is, it's it almost seems ridiculous. I, I guess it's because it's such a niche niche thing um i've played around with um i think it's a vc vcv rack um it's mm -hmm. a, a software-based version they have a lot of the same modules that you could buy in physical form um and they kind of emulate them or, or replicate them uh completely digitally and i have all the musical talent of a, a toad like it's just in fact no toads can sing better than i can um a, a mute person is about, is about as much musical talent as i have uh, a mute deaf person so but i i do find it fun going through it and and messing with it and just seeing some of the the crazy random uh, stuff that can come out of it and um i i haven't tried uh, my son has a my son plays piano and he's got the digital piano here. I've never tried hooking it up to the MIDI inf interface, but now as I was just thinking about it, that'd be something interesting to try too. But yeah, I, I think it'd be really cool to combine a lot of the the digital tools as well as kind of what you were saying there earlier with the going out into nature and just hammering on a tree and, and seeing how that sounds and then messing with it. I think there'd be a lot of really neat things you could do with that. Yep, and I do. I do try to uh, blend. I guess my philosophy with like fantasy music in particular is, I try to keep like mundane songs, mundane like physical instruments or just stock strings and drums and percussion. But the moment things start to get out of the mundus and into like the arcane or the the eldritch, I will start breaking out like synthesizers and try to. You know, give that feeling that this is different and otherworldly. You know, I want stuff that's magical to sound magical. And a lute doesn't sound magical, but a big oscillating synthesizer is going to sound different enough to, to players that they kind of think, okay, something's going on here with this particular instance. Yeah, your brain's trying to find that pattern and it just isn't coming because it keeps changing all the time. The... The uh, I guess the other thing th there as well is I mean especially with D and D there's been a long history of combining science fiction with fantasy, and so you can really play into some of that stuff as well. Mm -hmm. What's the so you mentioned earlier that, that you kind of found the OSR a little bit just by going through like through the music uh, and doing some some side projects. What is the OSR to you? Like what is how do you view the OSR or old school gaming? Uh, what, what I, is, when when those three letters get said, it's a different definition for almost every person. But what would it be for mm -hmm. you? For me, it's not even just like specifically tabletop gaming. It's the growth of role playing games into an entire world. Practically, I don't just look at at the OSR as old D and D and its offshoots. I look at it as the beginning of computer RPGs. I look at it as beginnings of roguelike games. I look at it as B-movie fantasy and sci-fi film and the music that came with a lot of those all kind of trigger the OSR in my head because it all takes a lot of influence from each other. Um, Conan the Barbarian is a reference you see with a lot of stuff in the older RPGs um, as an example. And even so far as like when I was working on um, Trials of the Dark Sun, I wasn't really thinking of like synth music from, you know, like Conan the Barbarian and stuff like that that's still in that sword and handle. I was thinking of like 
computer RPGs from like the 90s, like Diablo and stuff. Like I was looking <laughs> at that because that was like the sound in my head at the time. I'm like, if I'm on some like dark fantasy adventure, even if it's in the desert, like this is the kind of music that's in my head. Like yeah, lo-fi, you know, fantasy music. Yeah, it's really interesting the uh, the how one influences the other and you get that little bit of a feedback loop, right? Because almost every, like the, the entire, not just like uh, fantasy adventure or those sorts of video games, almost all video games have some sort of a link back to tabletop gaming in a lot of ways. I mean, just the fact that a lot of games have health points, I think is a direct, mm-hmm. direct, direct result of tabletop gaming happening. Um, and so you can see, you know, the, the influence comes in there and then it goes in waves uh, where, I, where I think it, it cycles back and the, ga- the digital games that maybe aren't tabletop games, but are like just computer games or console games, or what have you, start influencing um, the, the tabletop games. You, there was a long period of time where people were talking about um, the, uh, oh, the name of the game, Souls, uh, Dark Souls. Dark Souls like tabletop games, and this game is, reminds them of that, when really I think Dark Souls drew a lot of influence from early, earlier editions of, of D&D and the deadliness of those. Um, so it's, it's very interesting how it really depends, I guess, on what you've experienced first, right? Like what your personal uh, entry into any of this, any of this type of genre or, or uh, world of, of gaming where your entrance came in is going to be really determined where where you draw where your mind goes when you're trying to equate things. So I can totally see Diablo. I mean, I played way too much Diablo when I was <laughs> when I was going through college and and what have you. Like just way too many hours of both Diablo one and Diablo two. Um, so I can totally see when when you brought that up. I just kind of had a flashback of. <laughs> of listening listening to deckard kane talk to me um, but the moment you hear like the 12 string guitar and yes. like the tristram theme it like it doesn't matter you're just like okay yep this is what's going on and that's something that like i liked about that because it's still in i don't want to say like a super old computer game i mean I, the first one kind of is but a lot of games at that time, it was all like very heavy MIDI instruments and stuff like that. So like having this sort of very compressed sounding, but still noticeable, like facet of real instruments was another thing that captured that for me. And like I said, that was kind of what I was going for is I didn't want the music for this to sound like 8-bit. I wanted it to sound like old not great sound quality newer instruments i guess for that time period yeah it's it's interesting how how a sound especially a music track can really set your mind on how things are like for me i remember in high school um when quake first came out and Mm -hmm. you had you you had folks like nine inch nails performing on it and, and what have you and you're just like this is amazing um like it was like you know the bands that i that i really enjoy and you're just you're hearing this in in the video game you're like wow or i don't know how many people had like a little bit younger than me but how many folks a little bit younger than me had a lot of their musical taste formed by tony hawk uh simply because of the of the music tracks that are on there so yeah it, it plays a huge part um you don't hear it as much on tabletop gaming but i guess it's because unlike unlike with a, say a computer game or what have you where the publisher of that game can ensure that the music is happening. Um, yeah. And, yep. And has that, there's no way to make sure that's <laughs> happening. So nobody has, there is no like grand shared experience of, of sound when it comes to tabletop gaming. Um, I wonder if I, I know there are games that have come out that have kind of almost been an album based. I'm, I'm I'm struggling to remember the name of one right now. I don't remember if Morkborg also had like an album associated to it. But I know yep. I know there's been other games that have done that. I wonder if that will become more of a thing to build up that shared experience of, of the same sound happening. I am noticing that more. Um, so Morkborg had a companion soundtrack from the Dungeon Synth Project Knoll, which is really, they're like one of my favorites. It's all through the Heimat uh, der Katastrophe label from Italy. And a couple of the other projects 
there's a running theory that it's all the same guy just doing different styles of dungeons synth and it probably is but another label on there is kobold and kobold does stuff for basic fantasy and uh, mazes actually had a soundtrack done by noel as well and this has all been within like the last few years you start to see it more and more i did the soundtrack for we deal in lead um different third-party rpgs you know whether they're um it's osr nsr seem to be using the idea of a soundtrack as mostly an incentive i see it a lot for like kickstarter and like crowdfunding if we reach a certain goal um there'll be a soundtrack made that everyone who backed will get and i don't know if it's the promise of free music that gets people incentivized by that or if the idea of a soundtrack made just for a game is something that incentivizes people that's the one thing i can't really find a definite answer on but i'd like to hope the idea of a soundtrack is what incentivizes people i think it i think it was probably partially that and partially also the idea of it being like a collector's item something that the general public doesn't get or something like that because you see a lot of that in uh in video game spaces too where uh like i go i'll go to buy something on steam and there, there's like you can get this or you can get the deluxe version that comes with the soundtrack um and there's there's been very few games i've done that for but there's been a couple where i've been like yeah yeah this this game it's I feel like this is going to be a classic game for a long time. I want the soundtrack as well. Um, so mm-hmm. I can kind of maybe see that similar thing coming into play play as, in tabletop games as well. You mentioned uh, NSR and OSR. That's actually been a whole different discussion I've been having with a few other folks. Um, and I believe later this week, I've actually got a, a podcast that I'm appearing on where we're going to be talking about genres of, of tabletop gaming in the, in the special, specifically in the, old school uh, area and how the term OSR has kind of almost become a little bit nebulous where it's difficult to, like it's been difficult to tie down for a long while, but especially now where it's, it's almost unsure whether it's, whether it's purely a marketing term or is it a genre or is it almost a nebulous label in some ways? Um, and you've got other folks like, like doing uh, NSR or I refer to a lot of games as just indie games. Um, like this is an indie game and not as a, not a derogatory firm at all. Just like it's an independent game type idea. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm interested. So you see so genre is big in, in the music world. Um, you know, there's, I don't, and I don't know if it's simply because there's more people. Uh, so it's easier to get consensus or easier to have a, a, a critical mass of people to go, this sound is this genre. Um, but it seems like we have a very difficult time getting that same thing happening in tabletop space where either you can't get enough movement to say, yeah, this, this style of game is, is this text label. Or if you try to say, no, that's not this text label. It's this one. There's a lot of, of arguments that can happen and a lot of hurt feelings that come up where people think you're, you're excluding them. Whereas in my view, it's a lot of it is just trying to, be able to define a language so you could have a you could have a discussion about it without with everybody understanding what you're talking about for me i guess i look at the labels or genre terms whatever you want to utilize them as i look at them for like organiz- that organization organizational purposes um i'd never seen the uh, the nsr tag until i started working with colin when we were doing we deal with lead he would tag a lot of his stuff with NSR. And that was really interesting to me because he was making a Karen hack. And I always looked at Karen as like an OSR, like game set. It just seemed like that to me. Um, so I had to like kind of dive down that rabbit hole. And I guess I'm still struggling to find the differentiations between the two. But <laughs> you and um, everybody else in the hobby. <laughs> but it's, I guess, when you brought up the music genre thing, it brought to mind the fact that like, it's like saying I listen to metal. Yes. And saying I li- I play tabletop RPGs. I could leave it at that and there'd be some connection there. Oh, I also play tabletop RPGs. You know, and if you leave it at that base level, there's not really room to argue cuz you may like you know, 5th edition, I may like old school essentials. We can talk about our RPG experiences with with both. Or we can break it down even further and say, well, I like streamlined rules, D6-based 
OSR sci-fi apocalyptic RPGs, much like someone would listen to polyrhythmic Polish dance metal and, you know, kind of break it down. I, 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 like, I got to write, write that down because that's something. Say that again. <laughs> a polyrhythmic Polish dance metal. Why not? There, I'm going to look it up. Spotify <laughs> I'm, sure there's something, I'm sure there's something <laughs> out there. But, um, you know, the more the more specific you make the content you enjoy or you refer to the content you you enjoy, I think there is a bit of alienation that can come with that to people who are on the outside of that. And I don't think you, it's kind of problematic for both parties because if I say I'm into like old school RPGs or OSR RPGs, I'm not saying that to throw anyone away. And my hope is that if somebody hears that, they're like, what does that mean? And I can kind of like tell them about it and get them into it. But I think some people look at that as like, well, now you're throwing an extra layer of complications on stuff. So, you know, that must be like a you thing and I can't be a part of that. And I think that's not a good way to look at anything, but yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of nuance has to go in on, on how you, on how you bring that up, because there are definitely some folks that do use it in that manner that isn't uh, friendly or um, conductive to, to uh, the long-term longevity, longevity of any of this. But mm-hmm. then there's, there's, there's some folks that like myself, for example, where I'm just trying to, the only reason I wanted to find it isn't to set, you know, rails or fences or walls it's more just so that whenever i'm sitting down to have a conversation with somebody and i refer to something that it's it's a way that the other party goes oh i know what he's talking about because if mm-hmm. i say if i say uh, pathfinder to somebody or if i said uh, a horror movie to somebody people would have a general idea oh he's talking about horror movies this is the type of movies that he's talking about but if i said horror movies and i said and then i try to refer to um, I don't know uh, the new Top Gun movie that has come out and try to say that was in that genre. People would be like, "Wait a minute, what? What are you saying?" <laughs> and and <laughs> there, would, there would be a lot of confusion. And no, that's not a horror movie. But when you have that conversation in in our tabletop space, I find that uh, instead of somebody's going, "Wait, no," it's like, "Well, you can't say that that person." Like, and it just seems really odd that they can't have that dis- that discussion. So, I, I I would hope over time, and I, I like I said, it may just simply be because there isn't enough people where it's because it's such a niche hobby and it's so small that um it's easy to feel like you're on the outside of it if if you if you uh if you get not brought into that same label so maybe that's the kind of the the road of it but hopefully as it grows that we were able to have those conversations because i mean at the end of the day all of tabletop gaming is about being able to communicate with the person across from you. Right. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, it feels like if you can't even have that communication about the game, how are you going to yeah. have the communication in the game? It's actually super interesting um, that you brought up this topic because it just jogged my memory of last week. Um, in the old school essentials group on Facebook, somebody was like, I'm trying to get people to play. An old school essentials game. Yeah. And he's just like, I don't know how to word it to get people to walk away from fifth edition long enough to try it out. And a bunch of people gave him different suggestions to reword it as it's still D and D, but high lethality, blah, 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 this and that. And he made a, a reply post that it worked. He got him a bunch of players by just like rewording it. So I, I don't know if that's something to kind of like take as an idea of, maybe because like you said the osr means different things to everyone so it's really hard to tack it down as like a way to describe it especially when you put lots of games under that veil that are completely different from dungeons and dragons yeah exactly Um, so that's like where you know if you refer to something as old school gaming you know old school tabletop rpgs is that something that people might react better to than just saying, oh, it's an OSR RPG, and then trying to figure out what that means? Yeah, there was, uh, I believe it was Rude Hammer, Hankering and Fernell. Um, at one point, whenever he was first getting into old school essentials, he had a uh, a video that he had up on his web, on his YouTube site, and he was referring to it as, um, 
oh, I'm forgetting his exact words now, but it was something along the lines of this is traditional or is this, this is the, um, the ritual that we, like he was talking about like, you know, how, how we roll up stats or something. He was like, this is the way it was traditionally done that we're, we're going back and revisiting the rituals of how all this started and trying to frame it in that set standpoint of like, not, not, Hey, let's go play something old. It was more like, Hey, let's discover how all this started. What's the foundation of it. And it, and I thought that was an interesting approach that he took to it as well. Uh, just trying to frame it as it's something that you're familiar with, but let's find out how it got to that point. And uh, it'd be interesting to see if somebody took, I'm sure somebody has, but it'd be neat if somebody had a, a long going campaign uh, where they started say in like OD and D and every X number of sessions, they changed the system they were playing and just worked their way up the D and D zeitgeist of various. That games. would be that, that, that would be fun to watch. I'd like to see something like that, like either in like a podcast format or that would be fascinating. Cause there's so much that goes into that from like a game master perspective. Cause you have to know like all these versions yeah, you- yeah, you get into some of the games. I mean, I, I primarily play BX. Um, that's my main game, so old school essentials for if you're going from uh, from an OSR perspective. But um, just on the various BX clones and then mixing in that everybody has AD&D's DMG and has some familiarity with AD&D or second edition and, and OD&D, a lot of those rules start to blur. And I've seen tons of people having discussions about rules and being adamant that something happens this way and it's like yeah that 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 is correct if you were playing this game but you're talking about this one over here so it's slightly different yep so just being able to to have somebody who can keep that straight in their head as a if especially if they did it on a rapid sequence we're like all right this week we're or these two weeks we're playing od and next two weeks we're playing uh holmes and then we're gonna go to <laughs> like it would it would be very difficult but it would be very cool i agree i think that'd be neat i gotta pitch that to some, some folks because i can't do that but i i bet you there's a few folks that, i would rather play in that i don't want to run that <laughs> yeah yeah i wouldn't want to run that either <laughs> what what are you playing or are you more of a player or a gm like do you which end of the table i am i am the forever game master i'm i'm in that boat um I finally got to play for the first time a couple weeks ago to test a friend's 5th edition one-shot. They're kind of taking the introductory um, quest, I guess, from the Curse of Strahd and trying to make it a one-shot that they can have new players play. Okay. Because he wants to actually take it to his local like tabletop uh, store and r- r- run it for people. And it was actually really fun. And it, yeah, it was like the first time I've gotten to play in a long time. And I love being a player. It's just none of my friends love being a game master. So <laughs> that's usually what I have to uh, what I have to work with. But as far as what I've been running, um, we're my group is set to play We Deal in Lead relatively soon. But besides that, we play old school essentials running Wayne's uh, Dungeon Plumbers setting which is like my favorite old school essentials thing i've ever gotten it's i love it the book is amazing <laughs> wayne's dungeon um, plumbers yeah if you look up dungeon uh, plumbers i believe his name is wayne roberts i'm if it if, it's, if i'm wrong i'm really really sorry uh, <laughs> but dungeon plumbers at its basis before you open the book uh sells itself as a 1920s era diesel punk fantasy setting where the players take the role of hired mercenaries that clean out underground infrastructure of monsters and stuff. Oh, very interesting. I'll that's like it's, yeah, that's like its base level. But if you actually go through the first, like over third of the book is world building. It doesn't have to be a 1920s diesel punk thing. There's stuff in there to build a world that's sci-fi post-apocalyptic and however you build the world can be directly, like you can just take the Dungeon Plumber's rule set and throw it right into that. Um, Because somebody was talking about an old school essentials post-apocalyptic setting and I recommended that book right away. I said it's got all the world building stuff you need right on tables and it's got all the base rules. It's got like firearms rules and medical rules and stuff like that. Um, it doesn't have mutations or anything like that, but it has the weird system, which involves 
channeling magic crystals that were created by weird underground fungus and mushrooms and there's a whole weird little like setting with that but i also like to tell people you can play as super mario because you can as soon as you said dungeon plumbers i gotta be honest that's the first thing that popped in my brain um, one of the classes is literally um uh, super mario you're like the de facto dungeon plumber and you have advanced um, athletic movements. One of your abilities is the ability to squeeze into a pipe or a crawl space that's one size smaller than you. <laughs> um, different climbing. You're literally Mario. And that's gotten a lot of people interested. I'm saying, yeah, you can basically just be gritty, dark, handgun toting Mario in this game. There's, there's, there's nothing stopping you. Um, that should, when you that get, should be the marketing slogan right there for it. It pretty it's much pretty is. If you, if you look at the at the cover of it, the art on the front of it, if I'm not mistaken, is the art they drew for that class, which is a guy in overalls and a hat and with a mustache and a smoking gun and a pipe wrench and his hand standing on a pipe. And that was, I'm just like, there's no way. There's no way this is in here and everything you need to be that is in there. Um, if you reach ninth level, instead of like forming like a guild, you form a union. That's but like awesome. a plumbers. Yeah, you form a plumbers union. No, it's it's a it's really good. I recommend it to almost anyone. If you're trying to like spice up your old school adventure stuff and you want to do something more modern, I think it's like the de facto book for that. That's awesome. Well, thank you. I've I've got a, I've got that on my list. I've actually got a few things on my list now that I have to uh, <laughs> to look up after after speaking with you. Um, going back to to music and sound, the one of the things that. I've really enjoyed, uh, especially in the podcasting space, is there's a few different solo um, RPG creators that are out there. The one that pops to mind immediately is a fellow Canadian. He lives not too far from me. Um, Tale of the Manticore. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him at all, um, but he blends in a solo RPG actual play podcast. Um, but he also has a, a musical background and, and works in in the field as his day job, I believe, doing uh, other items in that area mixing and and what have you but he's brought all of the, all of his musical talents into his actual play as well and it really really sets the the tone as you're listening to those shows um that he does up um so i was going to offer as a, as a suggestion if you've not looked at them at all solo rpgs um and seeing if there's any of the creators of those that would be interested in kind of pairing up the the sound because i think that's another area where you can make it to where there can be more of a shared experience and the music be part of that shared experience as well for folks. Uh, because if you're just playing it solo, you're more likely to probably be willing to, there's less barriers to have sound and, and music around you at the same time. Um, so if you haven't thought about that, that was going to be a suggestion I threw it your way. I definitely will. Um, I'd never even thought of the concept of solo RPGs till I first, when I got dungeon plumbers, because there's rules in there for playing it solo and then working with, um colin with we deal and lead that's got a solo option too and i think um rune cairn which is his big one he made also has solo play rules so that was my first exposure to that even being a concept i'd never even thought of that and i now that you're bringing it up yes that would probably be a fantastic thing to kind of start approaching because doing a solo play with a soundtrack i think would be really really interesting especially for people who are perceiving it or watching it it definitely would set the mood for what's going on and you kind of know we don't really know but you have an idea of what's happening so you know where to put music and how yeah exactly the yeah the, i i can't recommend um or the the tale of the metacore it's it's fantastic um i think it's a it's a fantastic audio experience the gameplay is really cool uh, and he's able to really put out um some really neat gameplay that you would almost think was was scripted but it's not he has a, it is all legitimately played solo and he has guests come on to do various voices and what have you but um yeah i'd, I'd highly recommend it if you haven't listened to it I'll, I'll have a link to his in the in the show notes afterwards 
Um, another one that I would say as well that kind of falls into that similar vein, it would be James with some class act as well. I, I almost completely blanked and didn't mention him, but he'd be another one that's in that same realm of mixing in sound uh, with it. But um, see, uh, we're, I've, I've mentioned a couple of things for you to go look up. I've given you some homework. You've given me some homework. How would we give the listeners some homework? Where should people go to find you and, and all your, your, your works and anything that you want them to, to see and, and, and know about you? Where would you, where should they go? All of my work is available um, on, on my band camp, which is just bandcamp.com slash of sleeping bears. And it is all, um, even though it's something you would, you know, you're able to pay for my music, uh, you're not entitled to, and I don't put stream limits on my song. Some people do, you know, you can listen to it for free three times, then the hand camp will say, Hey, maybe you should pay for this. I have that completely disabled because I'd rather people use my music than think they have to buy it. Um, and for a lot of my projects, not for all of them, I do put like synopsises and examples of where the music would go in the track descriptions too very good and are you on if people want to reach out to you and ping you are you on twitter or anything like that along those lines or yep i'm on uh twitter at of sleeping bears i'm that's also my handle on instagram you can find me there as well uh that's my handle for tiktok it's my Facebook page handle. It's pretty much all of Sleeping Bears. Usually, it's lowercase, depending on what the what the website allows. And my last question to you. I'll actually, actually I'll lie. I'll have two more questions. Second last question is why of Sleeping Bears? Where does the where does the name originate from? Because uh, folks can't see this, but I'm I'm looking at our at our at our meat screen that I've got here. He's got a very cool icon of a, of a bear paw, very stylized bear paw uh, icon. Um, but yeah, why of sleeping bears? So I am from Michigan. I'm from Northeast Michigan. And if you go kind of northwest of where I live, uh, you go to uh, the Traverse City area, and there is a park called the Sleeping Bear Dunes. And that has a pretty strong indigenous story um, behind it of these three sort of islands that look like, look kind of like bears. And it's like our only real major dune place in Michigan. It's, it's beautiful. Um, it's one of my favorite places. That's part of it. Uh, the other part is uh, bears are one of my favorite animals. So I kind of double-tied it in there. That's why the bear claw is, is my logo. Um, but it's mostly just an homage to where I come from and kind of something that regardless of what I write, I always try to keep a little bit of that with me somehow. Well, that's very good. It's important to kind of keep keep true to uh, always be able to have your own personal thing on there, um, even if it's even if it was a project that's completely maybe not in your normal wheelhouse. Having your own personal touch in there, I think, is important, especially for somebody who's in a creative field. Um, so the last question I've got is: often when I do interviews with folks afterwards, I'm like, "Oh, I should have asked this question," or there's questions where the person who I'm who I'm having the interview with, uh, they're they're probably going. Oh, why, I hope he asks me about this. So my question to you is, what have I not asked you that you'd really like to talk about? What is something that, um, I, if it's super long, we can always come back for a different one, but if there's, is there something short that I should have asked that I didn't, um, that you'd like to let people know about or, or discuss at all? I do actually, um, real quick, I'm going to try to summarize it up. If this goes up in time, I am part of one of the stretch goals for appendix and entertainment's big kickstarter for um their um, old school Andros expansion um which i will send you a link to if you maybe want to put that in the show notes sure. and we funded but to get to a lot more of our stretch goals we need a lot more people to kind of jump in and sort of pop in there it's the gateway to adventure trilogy and it would be really cool to be able to make a, make a soundtrack for that because it's not really a soundtrack for the books because the books themselves are just class expansions. There's combat mechanics and there's magic mechanics. But all of the stuff that Ryan has written under Appendix and Entertainment takes place in uh, the Mid-Realm, which is his own sort of fantasy setting for Old School Essentials. 
and I'd be writing a soundtrack for that, which I think would be really cool because he's got a lot of fascinating stuff he's created for that that would be really fun to write for. All right, yeah. Um, like I said, I'll, I will tr- be trying to get this up either tomorrow or later this week. When does the Kickstarter close? Is there, do you know a date that it might be closing on? Um, I want to say October 15th. Okay, well, we will try our very best to get this out. Yeah. So if you're hearing this, folks, um, yeah, definitely I'll have the link to it in the show notes and definitely go check out the Kickstarter and, and boost that up. Um, and I'll take a look at it as well and and uh, see anything with Appendix N immediately kind of catches the catches the ear a little bit anyhow. So I got to take a look and, mm-hmm. and see what's going on with that. Um, Nick, I want to thank you very much for coming onto the show. It was a lot of fun chatting with you. It's a, what you do in this space is different than what a lot of other folks I speak to do. Um, it's a lot of similarities with, you know, I think a lot of creatives have a very similar way of approaching things and looking at things, but it's always interesting to hear how somebody else takes their art form and applies it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think sound is something that hopefully becomes more common in the tabletop space. Like I said, to get that shared common sound um that you know a lot of people get from from movies or video games but i think it'd be really cool to have that in in tabletop gaming as well um so yeah thank you very much for coming on and hopefully we can we can chat again soon yeah thank you so much for having me this is my first ever podcast interview so i hope i did good (laughs) you did amazing you did amazing awesome thank thank you very much All right, folks. Um, So yeah, please go check out all the links in the description and I will send it back to future me who's doing all the editing on this. Thank you very much, Nick, for joining me on the show. I will provide all the links to all the things down in the show notes. There will also be links to the Child Hero Contest. Everyone, please make sure you check that out. Also, as mentioned in the chat, don't forget to go check out that Kickstarter for Gateway to Adventure. I hope you all have been enjoying these conversations because I definitely have. And I think they're going to become a more common thing on the podcast, even after OSR October is over. Okay, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Red Caps podcast. I hope you enjoyed, you learned something, and that you're eager to come back for more. The call-in number is open at 385-2-RED-CAP. That's 385-273-3227. Or you can head over to anchor.fm slash the Red Caps and leave a voicemail www.threadcaps.net has all the links to all the ways to contact me and I would love to hear from you. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, never let your cap dry out. Stay safe, have fun. We'll talk again soon.